0: Welcome to the K2 sales podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point we've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a kind or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the k Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, how many of you are looking at your pipeline review and, and evaluating loss in one deals? And if you look closely, the studies will show that 44% of deals are lost due to status quo. So inactivity, the customers chose that their current state is better than moving forward to your solution. And, and and they've made that decision. But what's more surprising is 56% of deals are lost due to the customer's inability to make a decision. So they're indecisive. And so what we do as sales reps, and it's because this is all we know is when we see that they're not responding They're ghosting us. We're hearing crickets. We go back and we lay on the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt. You know, if you don't assign here, if you don't purchase this, uh, what's the risk to your team? You know, you're not going to get the the quarterly saving. Whatever it is, you're dialing up the fear. But it's not, they're they're not fearful of status quo. They've already acknowledged that they want to move forward. And so what we're dealing here, what we're dealing with here is it's indecisiveness. And so when we go, 73% of the time, this is what we do. We go to this customer and we try to redefeat status quo. It's not about status quo. And so what happens is because we're tackling a problem with the wrong solution, we're, we're looking at indecisiveness. What happens is 84% of the time we lose the deal because we are trying to redefeat status quo. And it's actually their inability to make a decision. And so what we're better off doing is doing nothing. But we don't know that because oh, the only card we've been ever trained is we got to beat status quo. And yes, we do have to, but there's a second possibility now. And it's, it's more, it's 56% of the time is that we have to help them make a decision. And so I had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Dixon, the author of this amazing book, uh, The Jolt Effect, amongst other books. Uh, one of them, all all we know here, we all know this is the Challenger and uh, the Challenger customer. Definitely a, a huge fan here. Highly recommend you read the Jolt Effect uh, if you haven't already. And what he talks about is how the Jolt really does address the level of indecisiveness with our customers. So J-O-L-T, Jolt is first judge the level of indecisiveness. So there's a scale. O is offer your recommendation. L is limit the exploration. So keep keep the guardrails tight. The reason they're indecisive in the first place is, is they're looking at too much homework, reading too many white papers. And T is how can we take risk off the table? How can we make it safe for them to buy and reduce that potential of buyer's remorse? So highly recommend uh, you listen to this. uh, Forward it onto your team or anyone you feel would benefit because, again, we've all been trained on status quo, but now we know it's more than that. 56% of the time deals die to inactivity is because... They can't make a decision, so how can we help them do that? Um, On another note, um, we are launching the K2 Sales Academy this week. It is an online sales training for both sales reps and sales leaders. We're continually adding content, so it's timely, it's relevant. There's a resource tab where you have access to templates, to scripts. There's uh, live webinars. There's live Q&A. So really, it's an annual subscription for both sales leaders and sales reps, and we're going to include a link to a free one-week trial in the show notes. Hope you enjoy the conversation with Matt as much as I did. And thanks for watching. So first of all, Matt, I want to congratulate you on all all of your books, but the one that we're going to talk about today, and again, all of them are Amazon as well as Wall Street Journal bestsellers, but the one today is The Jolt Effect. So first of all, congratulations and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation, Karen, and thank you for the kind words as well about the books.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so when you think back to 2020, which isn't that long ago, but, you know, some of us still have <laughs> nightmares and sweats about it. But, you know, yeah. for you, it really was for you and Ted was the researchers kind of a dream. And and yeah. really, as a result of us sales professionals moving to the virtual environment, mm-hmm. it allowed you to gain access through AI and listen to, I think it was two and a half million calls. Yeah. And, and this is what really is allowing us to have the conversation about this today as a result of your findings. Um, so why don't you, you talk to us about, you know, the original the original purpose for your study was really to yeah. understand what the best reps are doing. But you came up with a- another possible reason apart from status quo through these studies of yours. So why don't you let us know, you know, where in the study was that second reason revealed that, that yeah. people are holding back? and And for those who haven't read the book, what is it?
1: yeah sure no absolutely uh, happy to do that so just to take kind of a step back, you know Ted and I were always big uh fans of the work that uh, Professor Neil Rackham had done back in the you know the seventies and eighties with spin selling um and for those who've uh, who've read that book and if you haven't, by all means it's such a fantastic um uh study of sales effectiveness and I think one of the the real the first real uh research backed kind of uh, studies of sales or, or, or views on sales effectiveness. But what professor Rackham and his team did is they spent like 10 years sitting in on as a team of 12 people sitting in on 30 something thousand sales calls around the world. And I, um, I had always tried to get different organizations to sponsor the same kind of study. And I, because I, I write about sales, I don't necessarily do sales. Um, my sales pitch fell a little bit flat because <laughs> I pitch, I pitch people on this and they'd say, Oh, that sounds really interesting what do you think we'll get out of it? What do you think we'll learn? I said, that's the best part. We don't know. (laughs) And they would say, okay, what other ideas do you have? So, so, you know, but then March of 2020 rolls around and something interesting happened, you know, Ted and I were working at a company called Tether at the time. Uh, we're doing research, uh, R and D product stuff for them. They're a conversation intelligence, uh, platform, much like a gong or a chorus that your listeners might be familiar with. And, um, we the the pandemic rolls around uh, it's march of 2020 and in the world of sales uh we went to 100% virtual literally overnight and so Ted and I launched something, which at the time we we rebranded this because we didn't think the branding was great. Turned out, I didn't realize this would be so confrontational, but we called it at the time the sales vaccine project. Which we we said, <laughs> boy, this is cool because scientists are going to get us out of this. Either
0: would like it. You know,
1: they might like it. <laughs> we might get sued for that. Although I guess you might argue with the new book cover gets sued by the Jolt Cola people. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, but it's um you know so we we said, hey, if scientists can figure out a way out of this pandemic, then damn it, we can figure out what's wrong with sales and we're going to use modern technology to do it. And um, we recruited several dozen companies and we asked them. Some of them were already recording sales calls on platforms like the ones I mentioned. Uh, Others had not been doing that, but they agreed to do it for the purposes of the research. They started collecting these calls. Over about an 18-month period, we collected 2.5 million sales calls from a variety of companies and we used machine learning to study them. Now, to your question, um, the second part of your question, you know, this, what we discovered or what we went into study, we'd always been fascinated by this problem that I think all salespeople are very familiar with, which is the customer who says they want to buy from you where it feels like you've won selection. um, You feel like you've put the status quo to bed and then they ghost you or they dis, they disengage from the sales process. They go radio silent and, um, and it's so frustrating for salespeople. We actually found in our study that about 40 to 60% of deals end up that way, lost to no decision. So if you think about that as a salesperson, uh, or if you're a listener and you're a manager of a team, or maybe a CRO or a CSO, and think about that multiplied across an organization, it's just a massive, massive productivity loss. Uh, to think about all the time we spend pursuing opportunities, often that will go through the entire purchase process with us, only to end up disengaging and going radio silent. So we were always fascinated by what would possess somebody to do that? You know, mm-hmm. What would possess a customer to to go through that entire process uh, only to do nothing? And um, what do the best salespeople do to avoid it? So that was kind of our ingoing, um, that was a train we were looking to study. And what we found was pretty fascinating. So I think you alluded to this, that you know, the, I think the conventional wisdom in sales has always been that the customer who gets cold feet or disengages, the only reason the customer does that is because you failed to put their status quo to bed. You know, you've not conquered their status quo. And look, in sales, we know that status quo bias is a really powerful enemy. We contend with it all the time. Our customers will regularly, almost on a daily basis, pass up on a better opportunities sitting right in front of them just to keep doing what they're doing today. Even mm-hmm. though they know it's a suboptimal choice, they do it because they don't like change, they're lazy, all the reasons that have been well-documented by much smarter people than we are uh, for, for many, many years. So we've told salespeople, look, if the customer gets cold feet, then it's got to be a value problem or an urgency problem. So we, what we see is that salespeople go back and they try to dial up the FOMO, right, the fear of missing out. And so they will either say, Boy, Karen, you must have missed how many zeros were on that ROI projection. Like, or did you, you must have blinked when we were in the demo and I showed you that. Let's get back in the demo environment. Let's show you this again. Like, I want to play up how awesome, like, how could you say no to this? It's amazing. Like, you gotta, you gotta have this. Um, or if that doesn't work, if that fails to motivate you, I try to make a squirm a little bit with FUD tactics, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And what I'm trying to do is create that burning platform. So, you know, Karen, you, know, you told me that, you know, your, your employees hate, hate you for making you use this platform and your customers hate you for, for this, Karen, everybody hates you for making, you know, using that whole like, you got, you can't wish these problems away. Like, they're not going to solve themselves. And, and, you know, we, you mentioned you're losing ground to competitors. Well, we work with all your competitors and you are losing ground to them. And so you try to make the customer feel like that, you know, the pain of inaction, right? The mm-hmm. cost that they'll realize by doing nothing. And if those two techniques fail, usually we resort to the 10% discount. You know, here's the, <laughs> here's the discount that's only good this quarter, right? And yeah. nothing I can do. If you kick it down the road, then prices go up. Um, and what we found was it was so interesting we found that that is what the vast majority almost 75% of the time when the customer shows signs of cold feet or hesitation late stage you know when they're after they've said they they want to buy from you um, and they start to start get, getting cold feet and waffling and wavering and backpedaling we dial up the fomo fomo because we believe we haven't conquered the customer status quo but what was so surprising to us and what led us to the that maybe we don't fully understand this problem, which you alluded to before, is that those techniques actually backfire way more often than they work out. Uh, in fact, there was about an 84% probability that you would increase the odds the deal will be lost to no decision if you do those things. And that was such a head scratcher to us because it flies in the face of, of what many folks, including ourselves, we've been talking to salespeople around the world about what great sellers do. I mean, in the challenger sale, we say, I mean, there's a line in there that challengers are great at showing the customer how the pain of same, Mm -hmm. the pain of the status quo is worse than the pain of change, right? So they're really good at breaking the gravitational pull of the status quo. We couldn't figure out why until we went back to the data and what we found is exactly what you pointed out. It turns out there's two reasons a customer will do nothing. One is driven by status quo bias, which is uh, their preference for the status quo. And again, this is a big enemy in sales. We are not going to sell anything in sales if we don't beat the status quo. But it turns out there was an entirely separate driver of no decision losses that had nothing to do with the status quo. And that was customer indecision. In other words, a customer who's committed to leaving the status quo and is committed to you as a solution provider, um, knows that this is a top priority, is is ready to go, but they get wrapped around the axle with a source of indecision. And when you boil it down, it turns out, there are three fears of failure that customers contend with. The first one is, I don't know if I'm buying the, I want to work with you, Karen. I want to leave my status quo and a buy from your company, but you put a lot in front of me and I don't know what should actually be in the proposal because I can't buy everything, right? So what is the configuration of your solution that will lead to the best results? And I don't want to have buyer's remorse, right? Where I, I said we didn't need this or we do want that. And I look back and said, boy, I configured this the wrong way. I made a mistake. Um, the second fear of failure is that I haven't done enough research. So I feel like there's so much information out there about you, about your competitors, about this technology, about this landscape. I It's the next white paper I, that I read that's going to have all the answers. You know, it's going to show me all the pitfalls and landmines out there. And then the third fear of failure is that there's no safety net there. And what I mean is we call this outcome uncertainty. This is the customer feeling like I might not get what I'm paying for. I might not realize the ROI you've projected. I might not realize the cost savings, the market share capture, whatever the benefit is that you're selling. What if that doesn't come to pass? Now, what is interesting is that those three things, things—I maybe I'm picking the wrong configuration. Maybe I haven't done enough research. Maybe I don't have any assurance of success from this vendor, and this might go sideways uh, on us and end up being a big waste of time and money. Those things have nothing to do with the status quo. So you could easily have, and it turns out often do, have customers who are convinced that they need to leave their status quo or are absolutely convinced that you are the partner to do it with. Um, and they're convinced that this is a top priority for their business, but then start worrying about one of these other things. And so if I were to sum it up, what I would say is that in those situations, it's actually not about dialing up the FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's actually about dialing down the FOMU, the fear of messing up, because that's what's keeping the customer from moving forward. And when we do the math, we find that it's about 60% of the time, uh, 40% of the time is the status quo, 60% of the time, give or take, is the customer, one of these sources of indecision, this fear of failure. How do we get our customer who wants to move forward to realize they're making a great choice? They don't need to consume all the research out there because they're working with me and I'm a trusted advisor that can share with them the, the information they need to have to make a great decision. And they're not going to look like a fool. They're going to look like a hero by buying our solution. And, and there's every assurance of success here. So we've got to dial down that FOMU, in, if you will, uh, in sales or, or in order to avoid those no decision losses. Hmm. Wow,
0: that's action-packed there. I have to go back, rewind four minutes <laughs> to, to get to the point I wanted to really highlight, but let me just start by saying, Matt, when 73% of the time, people, three to three four deals, people are going yeah. back and they're they're re-smashing, trying to smash that or defeat the status quo. Like you got to be, as a sales manager, that's all they know. That's the card, yeah, the one card, right. like, guys, we must know. It's it. like a knee-jerk reaction. It totally yeah. is. Yeah. So this, what you've come across is new information. Yeah. But I think when they truly understand now that when you go back and when you play the only card that you've ever known and you get that burning platform and the discounts and everything. They don't yep. care. But yep. I think the eye opener here is that that 84% of the time has a worse effect on the deal. Like they are yeah. doing, it's better for them to do nothing at that point.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know, you you put it well, they, um, and we say in the book that when that's all, you know, You've only got one hammer, and every hesitant customer looks like a nail. Yes. And and there, in granted, there are lots of customers who are hesitant because you haven't demonstrated the value. They're not convinced that their status quo is not good enough. They're not convinced that you are the partner to to change with, and they're not convinced it's a top priority. And so for those customers, absolutely go to town with your beat yeah. the status quo hammer. But for the other ones, you're right. It actually can backfire more often than it works out. And I think one of the the most important things you you said there is. I think for salespeople, people ask me a lot, like, what's the first thing you should do around this? And I say, take a breath. (laughs) Like when the customer starts to disengage and show those, that trepidation, that hesitation, those signs of cold feet, avoid the knee jerk reaction because you Mm. actually could make things a lot worse for yourself. And that becomes an, in many cases, sort of like you're in this flat spin, which is unrecoverable at that point. And so think for a moment, what do I really think is giving this customer pause? And it might not be that you haven't you know um uh, dangled the discount in front of them, or you haven't used the fud and and you haven't demonstrated the value it might be something else, and it often turns out it is something else
0: mm-hmm. but imagine what they're thinking, so they're mm-hmm. they know that you know what the pain of saying I, i'm willing to go there yeah and then you and then basically you're throwing fear tactics their way when it's not actually that it's indecis it's indecision do you that yeah. exasperates them, and now they're going. Oh my God! I got to do more homework. You know, how am I going to determine that this is the right uh, solution? Like, basically, I'm going to kill the budget for my department, and I don't want yeah. egg in my face. you yeah. exasperate things. You're throwing fear at me. I'm going to be yep. paralyzed now. That I'm. You can see why they would do nothing.
1: Yeah, they're already. You know, we're uh, what we talk about is the fact that the you know because people ask, well, I get that maybe it's not effective, but why is it counterproductive? Mm-hmm. And I think it's for exactly the reason you just articulated you're using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid mm-hmm. and so you're just giving them more to be afraid about I was worried we we're picking the wrong configuration I was worried that we might not get the ROI we've gotten the proposal and that I used to build my business case with the CFO in an environment where by the way where cash is king and there's so much scrutiny even on low-level purchases today I cannot afford to have this go sideways like that I could get fired for that right mm-hmm. and now you've heaped on top of it, that the price is going to go up by 10% next quarter, (laughs) or that, you know, that, uh, that you work with all my competitors. Like I already knew that. And now I'm just frozen, right? I am absolutely frozen in place.
0: Well, well, even, you know, mental health and anxiety, it's at a high, like you're going to throw people over the ledge.
1: Yeah.
0: They're like, I'm just not even going to like look at anything in this division anymore because I have tachycardia when I think about it.
1: That's right. Salespeople, it turns out, are very good at this. So, so.
0: You know what, and and the, the irony is, it's all they know. So yeah. in their defense, it's all they know. It's all for that sure. the managers have told them. So this is this is new. It really is new, and uh, it it. You know when I when I read the book and I love the book, and if whoever hasn't purchased it, I highly encourage you to do that. But it's just it's almost an obvious way of thinking. But I think as salespeople were so reactive, and like you said, yeah. if we could just pause for a moment and go, look, we've already. Um, We've we've uncovered that they're okay to move forward, so it's not mm-hmm. that. So just kind of think back into past conversations. Even I think look at the person as a whole and say, like, are yeah. they risk averse in life? Is this person yeah. afraid to pull yeah. the trigger? Are they, yeah. you know, when they told me about their kids' camping trip and they couldn't <laughs> choose a site, like, is there patterns here? You know, things yeah. like that. Think about
1: it. when I went out to dinner with them at the at the <laughs> industry conference. How long did they pause before they placed their order? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, you're 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 so right. It is a different way of thinking, but it's, but it's a very a kind of human way of thinking. And I think if we put ourselves in that situation, there's this irony. We've been collecting data on this. It's not in the book, actually, but since the book came out, um, we've been asking salespeople to assess um, depth, breadth, kind of intensifiers of indecision with their customers. And then we've also been asking salespeople themselves to go through um, what psychologists call the indecisiveness scale, which is a set of about 20 questions that have been proven over time to be a great predictor of one's, an individual's level of indecisiveness. And what's so interesting is that salespeople, when they go through the personal assessment, are actually as indecisive as any of us, right? Mm-hmm. They they wrestle with decisions, they wrestle with choice overload, they wrestle with lack of information, outcome uncertainty, all these things. They're just human beings, but they all think that their customers are very decisive. They, in, in their view, I'm talking to a seasoned executive, a seasoned manager. And they're, those people are very decisive. I'm indecisive, and all my friends are indecisive, my family is, but those people. <laughs> they're not. And you know what? They're not, they're really not. And Somebody came up to me after I presented a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco. They were a VP of sales for a, a tech company that I think all of your listeners would know. So I won't mention them by name, but she came up to me after my presentation. And she said, you know, I thought about what we, this knee jerk reaction, like what we all do. And she said, I was actually on a call with one of my reps right before your presentation. And our tactic was to use the disappearing discount as a way to get them to say yes this quarter, right? She's like, we do this all the time. Yeah. And I what I suddenly realize is the customer's not worried about losing out on a 10% discount. What they're mm-hmm. worried about is losing their job. Yeah. That's the thing that's really important, right? Yeah. And okay, that's maybe that's an extreme example. But even if it's as simple as Um, missing out on, uh, you know, an opportunity to change the status quo, make things better for their company. Like Mm -hmm. nobody ever got fired for maintaining the status quo. People do get fired or they maybe just have egg on their face when they make a big decision or a big purchase and it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. And especially in today's environment, that's a really bad look for customers. Nobody wants to be the person Holding the bag and be culpable for making a decision now in the book we go into as you know very well and uh, your listeners as they um, uh, get into the book they'll they'll see we talk about the difference between status quo bias and this thing called omission bias omission so bias ultimately is about uh, avoiding loss but avoiding losses that are directly attributable to you because you made a mistake so again we're okay with missing out as human beings but we are not okay with messing up and that is true of our customers as well and that is why indecision trumps status quo bias as the main reason for doing nothing uh, in our analysis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have the, here are the errors of omission and errors of commission. Yep. You know, you can see why here it says it's tangible and observable and personable. Yeah. People can point the finger back to you. Mm-hmm. So think about even, you know, the role of a leader is to drive change, stand out, the reputations involved. And like you said, like if, if they're standing out and they can trace a line back to, Matt, that was your decision. You chose that. Like, I can blame you. Whereas when you think about the air of omission, omitting, you're you're omitting something. But you can kind of dilute and diffuse and blend into the background. There's no timeline. And, you know, Gardner, what, 11 people making a decision. Oh, yeah. you know, we... We all yeah. got in a group. Everyone he, had their nobody, hand in that. Totally. And you <laughs> yeah. can see how you can pass the buck.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we say, look, the status quo is born of many mothers and fathers in the organization. It was, <laughs> it's was, it been here for a long time. Yes. There's lots of other people who passed up on opportunities to change the status quo. They chose not to. There's been buying committees. There are you know, legions of managers and executives who've, uh, who've had the opportunity to change the status quo, and none of them have. They just kicked the can down the road. But when somebody does try to change it and doesn't work out, usually there's somebody to blame. Even in that environment where there are 11 purchase, you know, or decision makers or stakeholders around the buying committee, there's still one person's name on the contract. Mm-hmm. There's one person who, who made the call. And in certain cases, you don't know, put their badge on the table and said, yep. we need this. We need to drive this. And, um, and that is the person who gets called to task first when it doesn't work out.
0: And think about the economic environment when right now where people yeah. are laying off, pe- you know, people. Yes. And it's like, for me to stick my out, like, I wouldn't do it before. I'm most certainly not going to do it now.
1: For sure. Yeah, for sure. I And I think, you know, that certainly we're seeing this big spike in no decision losses. Like, almost on a daily basis, I, I've talked to salespeople, like, last week, who I talked to again this week, who have said they've seen their no decision loss rate go up, or mm-hmm. deals that they were convinced they didn't think it was a big problem for them last week, and now they're reaching out saying, actually, this is a big problem, because I've got three deals that just evaporated right before my eyes, and the customer's completely got, ghosted me, you know? And um, so this is happening more and more in the current environment. But I also think if you think about the things that drive this fear of failure, so too many options, I don't know what to choose. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd, I'd ask listeners... You know, for how many of you are your companies putting more options in front of your customers versus fewer options? And I think almost everyone would say, well, we're putting more in front of them. We're putting different versions of our solution, partner integrations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, different ways, for different contract lengths, premium versions, basic versions, like you roadmap items, you name it. Like there's more and more and more. Well, that intensifies the customer's worry that they might choose the wrong thing. Because in a world where everything looks good and there's so much marginal difference between option A and option B and option C, the best choice is to do nothing because you don't mm-hmm. want to buy, choose option B and then realize later actually option A or C was the better one to go with. I'd also ask listeners, think about uh, in your industries, uh, in your space, do you think there's more or less information today available to a to a customer to evaluate you, your competitors, the, the industry you play in, the market you play in, your technology, you name it, today than there was yesterday? I think we'd mm-hmm. all say there's way more today and guess what? There's going to be a lot more tomorrow. That intensifies the customer's fear that they haven't consumed enough, right? Mm-hmm. It's the next white paper that's going to have all the answers. Um, and then the third thing, outcome uncertainty, I'd also ask listeners to think about, uh, you know, for how many of us are we trying to move up the value chain? Go from like simple transactional product sales, maybe um, you know, uh, low low price points, up to sticky multi-year solutions that are true. You know, we're selling transformation. You know, we're selling this encompassing solution. And I think for, for most listeners, they'd say, yeah, our company is trying to move up that value chain. Well, if you are, the stakes go up dramatically for your customer. Now they really start to sweat. Am I going to get what we're paying for? This is a bet the career kind of purchase. Mm-hmm. So these things, I think, uh, irrespective of the downturn and the economic environment, these are like genies we can't put back in the bottle. You know, I think indecision and fear of failure is driven by things that are out of any of our control. And so I think it's really incumbent upon all salespeople to to figure out how do we deal with this.
0: Mm-hmm. Huge. And, you know, when you think about, first of all, when I started sales, there was no internet. <laughs> we had to meet face to face. So th- this wouldn't even be applicable, Right. But I think now when you when you look at selling especially a complex solution, people typically buy twenty percent of it and so the more you're offering all these bells and whistles and thinking that we're doing them a service, you know you're actually doing them a complete disservice
1: yeah that's totally that's totally true um you know we love putting options in front of our customers you know we love even when our customer says um you know on the options piece, I think it's just this this human desire and, and especially sales another sales knee jerk reaction like um, whatever you say, I want to say yes. Like, yes, we do that. Yes, we integrate with that. Yes, we can, oh, you want this? Absolutely no problem. And it feels good to do that. And and we know that options matter to our customer, but but they are a double-edged sword. Um, it, we find that you know while options are good kind of early on, they're good in marketing, they're good at the trade show booth, they're good in those early sales calls. Uh, what feels good early on actually ends up being a reason not to move forward later because the customer's got to go from, letting a thousand flowers bloom and think about lots of different ideas to actually buying something. And that requires that they decide not just what's going to be in the proposal, but what is not going to be in the proposal. And those are really hard decisions. What most salespeople do in that situation is they, they kind of foist the, voice the decision back on the customer. Let me ask you, Karen, what's most important to you? Why did you first reach out to me? Let's make sure we're aligned here, what your needs are. And what I'm hoping is that you'll figure out on your own what, what, what to choose and what not to choose. Um, but we found best salespeople do is they will shift from asking to actually telling. You know, This is, in my experience, and based on what I understand of your organization, I would recommend this configuration, and here's why. Uh, based on my experience, based on the experience of other customers like you. And so the analogy to think about there is it's much like the waiter or waitress in the restaurant, where you go into a nice restaurant uh, in Toronto and you, you're sitting down and you've got 20 wonderful entrees on the menu and you ask the waiter or waitress, like, what do they recommend? And they say, um, well, what are you in the mood to eat tonight? Which is super unhelpful, right? <laughs> so that's what most salespeople do. Yeah, what you want instead is... Um, is hey, uh, I actually, this is my favorite dish on the menu. If you're not quite as hungry and you're in the mood for something lighter, here's another good option, but you can't really go wrong. Everything we make here is wonderful. What happens in that moment, and this is true in complex B2B sales, it's also true in visits to the restaurant, is that when that happens, it allows you to deflect the blame on the on the recommender. So you you realize you don't realize the full penalty of a bad choice because what I know is I Karen's the, you know, the the waitress who's recommended this dish to me if I don't like it, it's partly her fault. it's not just on me right um, And this is true of in sales as well. Uh, this idea of you know narrowing up the consideration set in making a recommendation um, but again, you're right, another knee jerk reaction that I think in sales is is hard to hard to but find. just what
0: you're saying there, Matt I had a bit of an aha moment is when you think about people who are the the FOMO is high. Because they don't want the egg on their face, I made a bad decision. But when the sales reps make a make a recommendation, it's like, well, I can share some of that problem. I can say, you know, what it was based. The recommendation was based on, you know, us. The salesperson is this, so I can bl- or shift some of that blame. It makes it safer for them to move forward.
1: That's right. You're exactly right. So you have it's a, it's something called um, a delegate theory, which is happening there. Uh, which again allows you to shift some of the blame to the recommender, and uh, and that is a very powerful tactic. And so we find, you know, we when we looked at these sales calls and we look at this idea of offering recommendations, um, what sa- best salespeople will do is they'll shift from asking to telling. But but it's not quite as simple as that. What they'll do is go from lots of options down to a narrower choice set. And so I might have thrown uh you know a hundred ideas in front of you, Karen, but I'll go down and say, you know what. Let me lay out three different configurations. Mm-hmm. All of these are great choices, but they have some different trade-offs and pros and cons and different price points. So let me lay that out for you. Um, it's sort of the old Goldilocks mm-hmm. principle is like I'm trying. And then I what I do is I layer on top of that uh, some advocacy where I say, Karen, but you know, based on what I've understood about your organization, I would personally recommend configuration B. And the reason is X, Y, and Z. It's based on my experience. It's based on the experience of other customers just like you. But I want to be very clear, the other options are great too and if you don't like what you see mm-hmm. here, we can certainly revisit even these options. But but that is if you, you know, if you were to ask me if it were my money, that's what I would do. You know, that's a really powerful mm-hmm. moment for the customer.
0: It's huge, it's safe. Uh so but you've layered on social proofing yeah, and transparency right. there. Right. And so I can tell you two times in my life um as I was reading the book, I was, I was the customer. And I was experienced all yeah. three of these. I was doing research. What should have took me three weeks to buy a system. It took yeah. me six months yeah. and exact same. They're hitting the discount button. I'm like, it's not yeah. about the money guys. Yeah. I can't do what I need to do. And I'm going back to the drug. So I was completely the customer and I could, I was empathetic to what you were saying, but the other piece pieces I, I thought about my dentist and every time I'm in the dentist chair, he says, Karen, you know, if it were me and I were sitting here, this is what I yeah. would do. And every single time yeah. I do it, he could be like, "Pull your teeth out and get okay. you know so black this, teeth." I'm like, "Okay, is... done."
1: <laughs> so this is, I think you've hit on. So not to go down, we don't go to like the differences between the U.S. and Canadian healthcare system, but I would say that probably is a different difference between it. And here's, so I don't know, right? Because I'm not an expert here, but I would say that the U.S. healthcare system is the exact opposite, and it's super frustrating. Actually, I had. Uh, An issue, I had a nerve issue in my elbow. This is more than your listeners want to hear about. But uh, this is last (laughs) summer. Um, I, I experienced this and I went to go see an orthopedic surgeon and he said, well, we can do this kind of medication approach. We can do physical therapy or we can do surgery and I said okay um what would you recommend he said well we can do medication we can do physical therapy we can do surgery and i said well <laughs> pretend it was your elbow what would you do and he said you could do medication physical therapy and i was like oh god dude you're killing me like i don't know enough about yeah. this stuff i'm not an orthopedic mm-hmm. surgeon i know they have pros and cons like walk me through it and tell me what you would do instead what i had to do is go you know talk to friends and and try you know, a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon who would give me some like inside baseball kind of um information I did a lot of online research and it was super frustrating and it made me feel really alone honestly that I was mm-hmm, I was alone mm-hmm. with the consequences of of a bad decision versus being able to share yeah. that with somebody so
0: yeah and you know what even here in Canada when sometimes they're not as you know fluid with it but when pushed uh-huh. and said look if this was your yeah. daughter uh, yeah, yeah. what you would know. you do they will always give you the straight, because you can imagine like the impact of making the sure. wrong decision. Like you, you, you know, they didn't offer you jolt. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> the jolt of well, bacteria. look, and, and these are more important but, decisions than ordering a dish off of a restaurant menu. Like that's not a life, but some exactly. of these are life and death and quality of life issues, right?
0: But I I think it's important for the salespeople to just think of their customers as people. And just the examples we're sharing now in a restaurant, Uh dentists, doctors, your customers are the same They're people. So instead of just like, how can we just invite people to pause for a moment and go like, what could actually be going on here? And and not being so reactive and not seeing what truly is in front of us. That's
1: right. And you know, so here we can... I'll give you another one because we talked about this you know I, th- I think listeners uh, they may or may not know this Jolt is an acronym it stands for four behaviors and uh, Karen and I have been talking about one of them this idea of uh, offering recommendations, which is the o but but just use another real life example on this l l is about limiting the exploration and this is about how do I get my customer to stop swimming in a sea of content and start start stop trying to be an expert yourself and trust me as your expert now the the layperson's example I might use the non sales example is to think about you know, let's imagine you are planning a trip to Italy, for instance, um, and uh, you are talking to a travel advisor. Um, well, first of all, you could go online and you could research this, and and there are literally billions of travel blogs and, and it, sample itineraries and, you know, reviews and trip advisor posts and the whole nine years. It's it's overwhelming. You'll never consume it all. Now, you could go to a travel advisor or travel agent But how would it feel if the person you were engaged with had also never been to Italy, nor had they ever planned a trip for anybody else to Italy? And now that's a little (laughs) bit like, you know, engaging with a salesperson where the customer's feeling like, I don't know that this person knows a heck of a lot more about this decision than I do. Right. So we what we need to do in sales is build that that it's an overused term, I think, but that trusted advisor relationship. There's two pieces of that. You need the customer to trust you, and then you need to be in a position to advise them. Well, the way we again, mm-hmm. the instinctual thing for salespeople, the way you build trust in a world where customers from minute one of the first sales call probably don't trust you because they believe like you're you're like every other salesperson out there whose goal is to oversell them, hide the hide, you know, hide the ball, not share the bad information, um, sell the customer more than they need. And that's not your fault. That's the fault of every other salesperson who's preceded you, has burned the customer in the past. But you've got to you've got to bridge that trust gap. So how do you do it? Well, think about how often we have told the customer proactively, you know, Karen, I know you're looking at the premium version of our solution, but I got to tell you, based on what I see in your needs, um, I think the standard version would be just fine. Save some money and spend those dollars elsewhere. Or maybe even mm-hmm. telling you, um, I I don't think you need to buy a thousand seat licenses. I think a hundred would be perfect. Let's get some success with those first users and turn them into advocates. It's gonna put less pressure on you, it's gonna save you some money, and we can always expand later. Or or even in, mm-hmm. in a more out there extreme example, telling you, you know what, I'd love to have your business, Karen, but based on what you're looking for, I actually think our competitor is better at that than we are. Um and I'd be happy to put you in touch with them. Like these are moments where the customer realizes. This one, this person is not here to put one over on me or oversell me. They are here to get me to a great decision. So that's a trust piece of it. And then the mm-hmm. other piece, of course, is we need to be in a position to advise our our um, customer, just like that travel agent who's been to Italy 50 times and has planned hundreds of trips for other families to Italy and, and got rave reviews. That's the way we want our customer to perceive us. But that comes across in the little moments. Like, are you relying on other people to do your demos for you? Or are you doing them yourself? Are you showing up with the clown car of experts to every single call to answer all the customers' questions, the product people, the engineers, the customer success managers, the executive sponsors, Mm -hmm. your manager, or are you answering more of those questions on your own? Uh, Does the customer actually see you as an expert or as a glorified admin, Mm -hmm. right? And so there are are things that we do. And again, I think um, in some ways, the way we've resourced sales organizations and, and what's kind of been standard fare in sales organizations is actually exacerbating the problem right? where we have solutions engineers who do the demo. We have subject matter experts who join our calls to answer the tricky questions. All of that sets up a situation in which the customer feels like, I don't know if I'm dealing with an expert here. This is the Mm -hmm. travel agent who's never actually been to Italy themselves. So that's that's a scenario in which people will do their research all day long because what they think is the person on the other side of the phone or the Zoom doesn't know very much about this decision either. So I can't rely mm-hmm. on them to guide me to the right outcome. Or maybe I don't trust them to do so.
0: Yeah, huge. So we are we're, we're gonna, we jumped the yeah. LT. We're going to get to the J&O. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to piggyback on what you're saying, you know, having worked with sales engineers and coaching a, a number of teams now, what I find, and, and it all makes sense now in speaking with you and just with what you shared, is that if the customer is looking, they want to feel yeah. safe. They want to know when they make a decision, they can put it to rest. And it's good use of their money, you know, value for time, everything. But what I see is a lot of salespeople bring in their sales engineer, yeah. um, the CFO, somebody, and they hide yes. underneath them. Yeah. And it's like, up until this point, you were this, the yeah. expert. They have, they, you've gotten this far along. And then they just kind of, they pass the yeah. baton. And your customer's going like, hang on a minute. I thought you were you were taking us yeah. across the bridge. You want me to, t- I don't even know who's who's Jonathan yeah. now. And you want me to, go, so I can see why, so basically, you know, sales managers really need to ensure that their team, when they're bringing, when they're bringing external specialists to support the sales rep, the salesperson is still Correct. the point of contact. Yeah. And you need to have calls in, in, before these calls going, Matt. I'm going to do this, It's this, this. When I tell you to do this, I want you to only show that part. I'll field the questions, like yeah. really script it so that you don't lose that sense of capability that they've bought into. Yeah, up that's into
1: exactly point. right. You know The old adage is, is true in sales that you get delegated down to the person you sound like. And if you don't mm-hmm. sound like any more than a glorified admin, whose only value was to get Karen, the head of product on the phone or the solutions engineer to answer all the hard questions... Well, then what value yeah. am I bringing to the table? Because maybe I should be talking mm-hmm. to Karen because you clearly don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's, you're right. Um, it, the the orchestration there is key. It's not to suggest high-performing salespeople don't bring subject matter experts and solutions engineers and, and product team members onto the call. They do. But the way that they, they use those people is very different. It's exactly what you said. It's not hey, I brought Karen along, she's the head of product, Karen, take it away. You know why? Because right after yeah. that phone call, I get an angry call from Karen saying, I'm not the salesperson, don't punt the call to me. Yeah. And second, because again, that, that I get delegated down to the person I sound like and I've, I've diminished my expertise in the eyes of the customer. So what Karen and I would have done is exactly what she said beforehand. We would have sat down and roadmap that call choreographed it mm-hmm. and said, Hey, it's an hour long call, but Karen, we're going to tell the customer you need to go after about 20 minutes to get onto another meeting. And I'm going to ask you to show this one thing or answer this one question. Let's rehearse it a little bit, but please take no more than five, seven minutes. I need you to hand it back to me. Right. And, and I now cause I want the customer coming to me with questions, not trying to go directly to mm-hmm. you.
0: So why don't you back us up with the jolt and let's start. What What is the J? Yeah. Represent? The J
1: is uh, judging the level of indecision. So, you know, this, it all starts here. It's all about um, something you talked about Uh, earlier, Karen, which is understanding our customer's own personal level of indecisiveness, how indecisive are they as an individual, as well, how indecisive are the other stakeholders on the buying committee. Um, It's about understanding the sources of their indecision, where's it coming from. And it's also about understanding kind of um, uh, contextual factors that might be going on, like heightened budget scrutiny, or did the company get burned in the past on a similar purchase, or um, uh you know, is it is it a is it a recessionary environment where there's just a lot of eyes on every single purchase? You know, these are things that can really amp up the decision. Now indecision. Now what's interesting about indecision is that um we found that in two and a half million sales calls, almost ninety percent, eighty-seven percent to be precise were with customers that were displaying either moderate or high levels of indecision. So there's like nowhere to hide from this problem. You can't decide as a salesperson, I'm only going to sell to the decisive customers because there's only 13% of them, you know, are decisive. There's not enough of them to hit your number. Um, and so you've got to deal with indecision. But indecision is one of these weird things because if it is everywhere, how come we don't pick up on it, right? It's It feels like carbon monoxide. Like you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, uh, you can't touch it. And indecision is very similar, and I think it's for a very simple reason, which is these fears of failure, in fact, are quite personal in nature. You know, the, It's about the customer's fear, literally, of looking like a fool or maybe even look, losing mm-hmm. their job. And that is not the kind – none of your customers will ever raise their hand and say, Karen, I am a very indecisive person, and I am deathly afraid of making the wrong choice here. Like they all, they all play off like they're very decisive. And again, that's why salespeople think that they're dealing with very decisive customers. But that's an act that they're 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 playing or they're um, uh, they're they're doing in front of us. We know deep down they are indecisive. But how do we surface it? And so what mm-hmm. we found is there's there's really two techniques uh, at play here. And the metaphor I like to use is for salespeople to think of themselves like a maybe a surface warship, and you know there's a submarine lurking underneath the water um, uh, waiting to do you harm, in, uh, in, I'm not a sailor, you'll be able to tell this in any, any moment, but uh, in submarine warfare, there's like two ways that a surface ship could detect a submarine. The first is through listening, right? So is, the, is there an object making noise, right? Um, and so as salespeople, we need to dial in our active listening to pick up on the signs of indecision. But again, we in a world where we've never been taught to listen for these things, um, and where many of the things that customers say or do are kind of head fakes. I want, oh, this, this sounds great, Karen. I'd love to, I'd love to have another reference call. I, oh, but let's do that demo again. It was so amazing. For the average salesperson, it seems great, but is actually masking a hidden source of indecision. So once we can tune our listening and to pick up on these things, we're we're much better off. Now the second thing is if the customer's not giving us anything, if the submarine's not making any noise. What do surface ships do? Well, what they do is they send out a ping, literally ping a, a noise in the water, and they're waiting to hear the reflection back. Now, it's the same thing in sales. It's not asking your customer, hey, are you an indecisive person? Like you know, First of all, they'll find that offensive, and then second, they'll lie to you. <laughs> so what we do, what a ping is in sales is the salesperson trying to articulate the fear that they feel like the customer's grappling with, and then listen for the echo. Or listen for the customer to redirect them, so it might be me saying, You know, Karen, based on uh, what I'm picking up here is I put a lot in front of you, and maybe I'm sensing a bit of hesitation that you don't know what should be in the final configuration because it all it all it's a buffet where everything looks good, right, and just to let you know, every other customer I've ever sold to also has that hesitation moment of hesitation, so it's mm-hmm. totally normal, and that allows the mm-hmm. customer first of all it gets something that the customer's worried about, which is embarrassing actually. It gets it on the table so it can be spoken about. It's been calibrated because now you know it's totally normal because everyone deals with this, and it do, it either gets a an, a reflection back where you say, yeah, actually that that is kind of a concern. The last thing we can afford to do is configure this platform in the wrong way. We know we want to work with you, mm-hmm. but we can't have everything. And so what should be in the final configuration, we just don't know. Um, it it makes it okay, and you get that reflection, that that confirmation that yes, that's my concern, or. What it might get is a Mm -hmm. redirect. So it might have you saying, well, actually, that's not our concern at all. I think we're pretty comfortable with this. What we're really concerned about is that we might overbuy, right? We might buy 1,000 seat licenses when, in fact, only 100 people use the platform. Like, we can't afford that. And that's a little bit more of that outcome uncertainty, but it gets you to redirect towards the real fear and the real concern. So mm-hmm. now once we do this, once we assess the level of indecision, it lets us do lots of things in sales. We figure out our playbook. How am I going to get you across the finish line? What needs to happen? Uh, it helps me forecast this opportunity. Um, and it helps me uh, make hard decisions about uh, disqualification. Is, is this customer too far gone? too wrapped around the axle of indecision and surrounded by other buying committee you know, members who are equally indecisive, my time is better spent elsewhere as a salesperson. Maybe I'll put you on the back burner, put you in a drip campaign. We'll stay in touch, but I'm not going to spend my time here. Right? So that's why we need to judge the level of indecision. And that's a tricky thing to do in a world where, again, there are a lot of head fakes that our customers give us uh, that seem mm-hmm. like progress, but are in fact sources of indecision.
0: Yeah. Huge. So many things there, uh, Matt. And what what you describe is the labeling part. After what I love about labeling is that it invites your customer to keep talking without kind of making it a pointed obvious question. And what you just said is they either confirm it or they give. Well, it's not actually that's more this. So they're still sharing more information without kind of it. It's just a pattern interrupt, it's not a direct question. So I love the labeling. And and even what I do, I just, I always say, you know, rest assured, you're not the only one. A lot of the sales teams I work with, they too are experiencing that. And you can just see their shoulders come uh, down and they're like, you're not alone. (laughs) This is very typical. Even if it's not, I'm like, you're the only ones doing this. (laughs) So um, all jokes aside there. Um, But no, I I love, I love that the submarine thing in that active listening is is key. And there was a study that just came out and it was um, not just came out, but I posted about it that customers place active listening at 42% of importance, but when you look at what it is on the radar of a sales manager it's 26%. So they're not pushing it as a priority, but what you just said there is, and so often it's, it's not even the spoken word. It's the unspoken and it's, And especially in virtual, are you picking up on the cues? The Even in your book, you you mentioned the, I got it versus, I think so. Like that's yeah, subtle, it's very but subtle. there's an element of uncertainty and doubt there. And those who are really leaning in and customer focus go, you know what, Matt, I'm just not sure, you know, is there something that we need to, you know, do a bit of a deeper dive here or even maybe that's not the right way to say it. Maybe it's more like what I, what I would suggest is we do yep. this. And really take that control because you're getting in front of, and I think in the book it said that the top performers get in front of any hesitations any knee jerk, whereas the other ones they're doing it after they've expressed that. So how can you, and kind of going back to challenger really keep that control. Don't allow the hesitation, the knee jerk to come in, just layer them with, you're in good yeah. hands. I am a trusted advisor. You can trust me. This isn't the first rodeo I've been to, and let me show you how. And really take your hand. Yeah, hands. and
1: it it really is such a, a comforting moment. It first of all makes the customer feel like they're not alone, right? But in fact, they're going through yeah. this with somebody who's helping them look around corners, who is a real expert, and and most importantly, has sold this solution to customers just like me, and have mm-hmm. helped that those other customers get value. And to look like heroes, not look like fools. And so you're right. It's just, there's so many subtle moments that I think if you look at, you mentioned before these signs of implicit, what we call implicit non-acceptance, the difference between yes, you nailed the answer to my question, and I guess so. You know, an average performer Mm -hmm. lumps those two together. Those are one and the same, right? I'm going to put you down Mm -hmm. for yes, Karen, and we're going to keep going with the sales pitch. (laughs) A high performer, we found this in the calls. (laughs) They would actually stop the conversation and say, I don't want to read into it. Um, but, uh, is, is there something going on here I'm by, thinking maybe I didn't totally nail the answer to your question, or maybe there's something else mm-hmm. you're worried about. And so I'd love to have a conversation about that because I'm not doing my job if I don't, you know, allay mm-hmm. any concerns that you might have. So, you know, these are, these are subtle moments and they're so hard to, they're, or they're so easy, I should say, to let, you know, slip past us unnoticed. Mm-hmm. But once we know what we're looking for and what we're listening for, we start to pick up on these things, right? And we can, mm-hmm. and then we can work with it. We can do something about it. You
0: almost want to show, first of all, I I think a lot of people can't detach from the outcome and that's why they're doing it. That's why they also can't say, you know, I'm not the best solution here, but I can put you in, in, you know, in conversation with our competitor, nine times out of 10, they're going to come back to you when the Uh time is right. But we can't do that because A, we don't have pipeline or B, we're too attached emotionally to the outcome when we're thinking about us. So I think that if you can do that, but I also think when these nuances when we're unaware of them, we've never seen them. It's like looking for a new in a haystack. But imagine seeing a call and someone pointing out and saying, see when Matt leaned yeah. back, yeah. see when he rolled his eyes at it, see when he did that yeah. and he put his hand. Then we know that. So I think there's definitely um, an opportunity here for training and, and, a, and really showing sales teams what excellent, what good looks like. Like, what is my true north? Where am I aiming yeah. for here? Instead of hitting the more button, show me how.
1: Yeah. Show
0: me what I'm looking for.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I, I think what at least when I talk to sales teams, I was doing just just this morning talking to a sales team about this. And I think getting down to those really tactical examples, here's what most of mm-hmm. us do. Here's a you know, here's a sample like record, you know, a, a recording between a customer and a, a salesperson. Let's give this a listen. Here's what most of us do. And on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. Let me show you the data on why that backfires and what's really going through the customer's head when you say that. Let me show you what best salespeople do. Here's a different example. And then people see that, they say, oh, got it. You know, and I think it's it's in many respects with salespeople, it's about creating that almost that cognitive dissonance, right? It's not that what we're talking about doing is right, is very proximate to what you're doing today. It's actually really far apart, but you don't appreciate that until you see it in action and, you know, Mm -hmm, with real tangibility.
0: Yeah. And, and I think the reason why your books have done so well, and is because of that, you're showing what people think is not a big deal. When you back it up with two and a half million calls, Turns it's, out a it's a huge deal. deal. It's killing 84%. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Turns out that little hiccup is right. 84% of your pipeline in the tube, you know? Right. So I think that's why people want to know the data behind it, mm-hmm. because sales, unfortunately, there's a bit of fluff there. Like, yeah, yeah it should do this. Yeah, you should be okay. Yeah. And it's like,
1: can it yeah, or can yeah, it? it's
0: like I need I need definitive answers. Yeah, that's here. Uh,
1: you're 100 percent right there. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of personal opinion and conjecture and, and conventional, passed down conventional wisdom in sales, um, uh, ideas that have been perpetuated for a very long time. And I think um, what we've tried to do, uh, at least uh, for our part, is to bring some data and some research and rigor to test some of these assumptions. And look, mm-hmm. a lot of what we find in our research actually validates what salespeople have been doing for a long time. turns out that's absolutely what mm-hmm. you should be doing. But every once in a while, we find these examples that it's like, boy, you thought this was the right thing. In fact, it's not just unproductive, it's counterproductive. And those are the moments yeah. that I think create that real head snapping, like, wow, we brought data to bear on on a problem that we could never really figure out. It was like we we're beating our heads against the wall, and now we know why.
0: Yeah. Even when we're validating what's already working to understand sure. why, uh, because exactly. a lot of it yeah. is just like I, someone says. Well, they just write that down. But but why? Why, why well, they just do you do it. that? Why yeah. do you turn your head right when I? <laughs> and I'm 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 the like the curious person yeah. that needs to understand what is what is triggering them in their brain, and their hearts, and their emotions is doing that because then I'm going to be more intentional yeah. and and I and I understand the bigger picture. So I think that's missing yep. too. Um, anyway, so we went to Jay, which was judging the indecision, and you said this is the most important step, and I would say like this is where you either you know you qualify yeah, in or out because right. when you think about the amount of time you're going to invest on somebody who is either in isolation or surrounded by a bunch of yes people who yeah. have no idea what they're doing, you just got to think you know if if time is the currency we trade, is this a good yes, use of my yes, time? Yes,
1: you cannot afford to, as the adage goes, you can't afford to chase garbage trucks and sales, and I think unfortunately. Uh, most salespeople are guilty of this and they don't make those hard decisions. Like, look, look there's nothing fun about um, disqualifying an opportunity. Uh, it's, you know, we, we work hard to get them, we work hard to get in front of these customers. But when we know that this is a deal that's unlikely to go anywhere, making that hard choice is actually the smart, it's really the smart choice, right? Mm-hmm. Because time is your scarcest resource in sales. Yeah.
0: You know, oh, offer your recommendation. We yep, kind of talked sure. about that about just you know us taking control versus in the past it was well like well why don't you tell me what you think and and like you said you're opening up that front we started to taper yeah. yes. now you're opening that's it up and they're like hang yeah. on a minute I thought you were I thought you were gonna give me the A yeah, or B yeah. you sent me to the <laughs> yeah a to S. <laughs> right. that's right and then Al uh, is limiting the exploration yep. so do you want to talk a little bit on about, about yeah that? we talked
1: about that a little bit ago but I would uh, what I would say is that that's about again that's that piece of. Of look, I mean you can't Jedi mind trick your way to victory here. You can't tell your customer, like, Karen, you don't need to read that Gardner Magic Quadrant Report. Like, there's nothing to see in there. Your customer is going <laughs> to consume content, but but most customers will end up over consuming and they will get wrapped around the axle of of uh you know information overload and analysis paralysis. And so in and, and that is because the customer is trying to become an expert, because there's a big decision we're asking mm-hmm. them to make. And we're trying to get them to stop trying to be an expert themselves and start trusting us as an expert. And as we talked about, there's two problems with that. Most salespeople are not trusted by the customer at face value. Um, and uh, most salespeople are not experts or at least don't come across as experts. So we've got to do both of those things. And that, when we do those things, what it does is it earns us the right to use a bit of radical candor with our customer to say, You know, Karen, I I know you want to do another reference call, but I got to be honest, I don't know that that's the best spender of your time. And hopefully now you appreciate that. My only objective here is to get you to a great decision for you and for your business. But I don't think you're going to learn anything more in another reference call that you didn't learn in the other two reference calls that you did. Um, And so let's talk about what what your hesitation is, what's going on here. And Mm -hmm. um, and, and are there things that I can do that would be a better spend of your time and, and resources to get you the data, The the insight you need to make a decision, whether that indecision is buying from me, buying from my competitor, or just staying with Mm -hmm. what you do today, sticking with your status quo.
0: And that is so powerful. I just think it's it's the unspoken. It's the question behind yeah, the question. Sure. And so many people, if they just stop, but they have happy ears yeah. and they're running to do the third and fourth yeah. demo and you're flying people in and you're just like, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> this has nothing to do about the demo. And so again, a lot of this is just pausing for a moment and thinking about the other person and just kind of going like, what actually is yeah. going on yeah. here versus, you know, because it's not that hard. Yeah. You know, if you've done three demos, I'm going to show you the exact same thing. Like, but you think about it, it's a definition of insanity. Think
1: about these cu- requests we get from our customers for more and more information. And again, for the average, this is another counter-instinctual thing is that what we want to do is say yes. And, and I think for the average salesperson, it feels good to say yes, to do that fourth demo or that, you know, another POC in another part of the business or another reference call or what have you, send the customer another white paper, sign them up for the next webinar. Like that feels good. And, and deep down, what the average salesperson likes about that is that this is a customer who is making progress, right? They're continuing to engage Mm -hmm. in the sale. They're moving towards the finish line. And even better than that, when my manager asked me in the pipeline review what the next step is, I've got a next step, right? So, oh, no problem. Uh, Karen's coming to next month's webinar. It's gonna be great. And we're gonna debrief afterwards. It's gonna be great. And I feel like we're making progress, but what high performers know is that is a customer who is never gonna make a decision, right? That person is is Mm -hmm. in the analysis paralysis zone.
0: And you have here the level of comfort with tension most sellers yeah, lack yeah. is the definition between high performers and 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 I just think you know I don't know for me saying yes or or getting even a yes I'm like that's not no, a yes no, <laughs> like I can read in between no. the lines and that's where the labeling comes in and and call it out yeah. and just say like typically it's either you know it is what it is or a lot of times it's this and you know it's are you feeling this and I just think going back to the the you know the indecisiveness and measuring it. Like, let's not go any farther if you're just telling me what you think exactly. I want to hear.
1: Yeah, exactly. But you're right. You know, the I love the phrase you used before. We used to use this all the time uh, in the past, The uh, that happy years reaction, right? Um, and, and so salespeople just, I mean, they just love the yes, 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 the, you know, more steps, more options, um, me just telling you what you want to hear, as you said, and that moment of hitting pause and saying, actually... I'm not going to do that. And here's why, you know, and I don't think that's a great Mm -hmm. spend of your time and here's why Mm -hmm. it almost gives, you know, makes your customer do a double take, right? Because every other salesperson they've ever engaged with says, yes, yes, yes. And they have the happy ears. Um, And for that Mm -hmm. salesperson to say, you know, I'm not going to do that because that is not a good spend of your time. And the last thing I know you Mm -hmm. have a day job and your day job is not to sit on demos with us and not to do reference calls with our customers. Your job is to make a decision here. And so I don't think it's going to help you get to a decision. Let me figure out a better way to do that. That's beautiful,
0: and that's a pattern interrupt because they're used to everyone yes. jumping when they say another totally. one, and it's just like this isn't a good use of your time. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, "Did you say no yeah. to me? Wait, what? Yeah,
1: yeah. I did. And this is why. <laughs> hold on a second, because <laughs> I got a better option yeah. for
0: you. I'm on actually your side, and everyone else is not on your yeah. side because they're just. Uh, following <clears throat> what you're saying and you actually, you know, then that's where the sales rep is like, I'm the expert mm-hmm. on this. Own it. Own your that's expertise right. because you talk to people like that every day.
1: Yep. They don't. That's right. They'll never be the expert um, that you are. I mean, they, even for a, for a salesperson who's not, is new in their career, maybe new to their company, remember your source of authority, right? And and you know way yes. more about this. After two days on the job, you know way more about this than the average mm-hmm. customer will. Um, and so you are in a great position to advise and guide them um, as a salesperson.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, round us out. T, take risk off the table. So this deals
1: with that outcome uncertainty problem, right? The the worry the customer has that they're not going to get full benefit um, uh, from their decision, right? I'm not going to get the ROI. I'm not going to see the the adoption. We're not going to see the transformation. We're not going to see the cost savings. Whatever the outcome is that we've promised um, uh, in in helping the customer make the business case. And what? And again, that this one's really cute, right? Because it's it's really painful for the customer to think about. Hey, I built my business case on a 5x ROI with my CFO. They we arm wrestled over that. They they approved it. And what if we only get a two or three x ROI? Like that might be great, but it's less than the 5x that was that we used to build the business case. Somebody's head's going to roll, and it's going to be me because it's my name on the agreement. Um, and so this is this is a really tough one. And we find as best sales. The first thing I will say about this is that the seeds of outcome uncertainty and hesitation that customers have around, am I really gonna see these benefits? Are we really gonna capture all uh, that ROI? The seeds of that are planted very early in the sale. So this is not just like a late stage thing. This is something that actually you need to be really mindful of early on. We found even looking at the same companies in our data set, we looked at high performers versus average performers, and they're selling the same exact solution average performers grossly inflated the roi the cost savings the the benefits that the customer could expect compared to what high performers would do high performers live by the mm-hmm. mindset of under promise and over deliver right even where the customer would say to them yeah i know you're saying it's a 5x roi but i was looking at the case study on the website by the way that those those that company i know them really well they're just like us and they got a 10x roi so why are you saying we can't expect that the high performers will say, you know, we love that case. It's a great case. That's why it's on our website, <laughs> you know, i um, mm-hmm. glad you found it. And but you got to keep in mind, there's a lot of things that went right with that customer. They resourced the heck out of this. They had planetary alignment with their initiatives like this was an executive led uh, thing. So what I'd rather do is is build a business case around 5XRI because we see that on 100% of our deployments. And everything beyond that, which I'm, com- I'm comfortable we will see something beyond that, is upside. And so now you look like a hero, not like a fool, because you didn't – and if we build this around 10X, you're going to feel tons of pressure to deliver that. And we got to have a, everything go right. So let's be more um, more reasonable, if you will, with our expectations. So – that you see that early on. And then later, when we, when the, cause the customer, even if their expectations are properly set, they'll still say, well, what if we don't get the five X ROI? And I'm not even blaming you, but like our company, are we're so you know we're so dysfunctional. There's no way we 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 screw up everything. There's no way we'll see that. Um, how do we provide some assurance of success? And there's so many different ways to do it. Um, we saw like in, in more transactional purchases, obviously opt-out clauses and cancellation for convenience things like that. In more uh, complex solution sales, we would see salespeople using things like additional professional services. Now, what's interesting to us is that Obviously, high performers sell more of that stuff than average performers, but it was the way that they would position those resources. So they would say, you know, Karen, I know you want to DIY this. I know you want your own team to do the work. That's one of the beautiful things about our platform. We have all the training videos, the CS team. We're there to support you. You can do this on your own. We've got the playbook and lots of examples of companies just like you who can uh, do it themselves. But what I'd recommend is, because it's such a big, um, there's so many eyes on this, I'd recommend adding a slug of about 100, maybe 200 professional services hours. Um, and the reason is that it provides a bit of a safety net. If anything goes sideways here, you've got the A-team lined up and they can swarm the problem and get you back on track. And if you don't use those hours, let's roll them into the renewal contract right next year. Or so, mm-hmm. um, and So again, how do I provide that assurance that you feel like, boy, These folks know what they're doing. They've they've established. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to look like a fool. I'm going to look like a hero. Another example might be um, a uh, you know mutual uh, mutual action plan or a a value plan or pulling forward the customer success team to say, you know, let's start thinking about how we're going to go from contract signature to value and what that first you know two months, three months looks like. Here's a roadmap. And by the way. It has roles, it has KPIs, it has resourcing requirements, expectations, gotchas, and landmines that we've realized in our experience sometimes trip up our customers. So, let we, mm-hmm. this is built back from the experience of our most successful customers, and it's informed by the experiences of customers who haven't gotten all the value. And so, this is like your roadmap to success, and let's start onboarding you to this. So, that again gives the customer the confidence that you've seen this movie before, you know exactly. You're going to help me look around corners. You're going to help me avoid those pitfalls. And uh, and you've got my back.
0: Mm-hmm. And imagine the person who had FOMU. Yeah. He's now an advocate. That's right. going. That's right. he, he's bringing that to his boss and saying, we need to move forward because look, we've already mapped yep. out you know, the first three months, how we're going to recognize and reap, you know, the, whatever was promised yeah. to us. I, and I think that's, what's missing. And even just what you shared the context in, you know, the reason why we're doing this, a lot of people that just are selling, here's another line item, but why? Cause it, it looks very self-serving for the for salesperson. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, we can do this. We have all the videos. So here's option yep. a, but on the other hand, what you showed me, and, you know, there was some apprehension in, you know, moving forward and make a decision, this would really give you that added level of protection and buffer. To ensure that nothing yep. goes wrong. And, and and I think what's missing is sales reps are unable to help people see around the corner. And that's why they're reluctant. to That was why I didn't buy either. Nobody could help me see around the corner. And so it's like my fear... I was just hanging on to yeah. status. I was like, "This, I'm never going to move because nobody can tell me that this is going to yeah. work out. And and sometimes they haven't done it themselves.
1: Yeah. That's right. That's right. They're, they don't, they're not speaking from um, any source of authority, right? Or any experience. No. And, you know, in that situation, the status quo becomes the default option. It's not, you may have looked at your status quo and said, hey, I it stinks and I need to move forward. And I actually even think I want to move forward with this vendor. And I know this is a top priority for me and my business, but I don't. Know if they're gonna, if they've got my back. I don't know if I'll actually see the benefits, and this might have been, end up being a big waste of time and money and resources. And so I just do nothing, which then makes the status quo kind of the default and the safer choice.
0: Yeah, wow, my head is full. <laughs> no,
1: this is great. I, I enjoy going through all this stuff with you.
0: It's awesome. Uh, So just, you know, we talked about why you you did the study in the first place, and it really was to look at, you know, what high performers are doing to get around status quo. But what revealed itself was that 56% of the time, it's actually the inability to make a decision, So, which was huge. And then as a result of that, you and Ted, you know, took your findings and came up with the yeah. Jolt effect. So um wanna thank you so much for your time. And before we go, Matt, where I know people are gonna want to know more about you. Um I'll link where they can purchase the book, but what what's the best way for people to follow you to get in touch with you should they want to learn more about any of your books?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So i I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um so if folks wanna connect with me on LinkedIn, tell me you heard me on the show and and send me a send me an invitation if you have a follow-up question or or want to learn more, that's a great place to get a hold of me. And then for folks who want to learn more about the Jolt Effect, about the research, uh, we've, um, you know, how do I bring these skills to my sales team? Enable my managers to coach these skills? We've got a whole, you know, bevy of enablement content that we built on our portal, the Jolt Effect or it's Jolt Effect.com, not the Jolt Effect, but Jolt Effect .com, and uh, you can check that out. Again, lots of options for folks to uh, to evaluate some some free content as well for readers to go and download uh, to continue their learning journey and. Uh, and move the needle on some of these important skills
0: excellent and we'll be sure to include all those in the show notes so thank you again for sharing all your insights and wisdom um, i know i learned a lot and i can uh, imagine my my audience did as well so thank you matt and thank you all for tuning in we'll see you next time thanks Karen. thank you for tuning in to the k2 sales podcast if you enjoyed the show please be sure to subscribe on apple spotify itunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Our weekly sales insights are geared towards sales reps, leaders, and small business owners to help navigate the complexity of modern-day sales. Our tactical takeaways help you put a plan in place to start creating your own game-changing results. Until next time, happy selling. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.